The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Our God in heaven, it is a delight and an honor that we can come before your word and we can open this book and we can look at the words knowing that this is more than just mere mere ink on a page. This is power. This is truth. This is your word. This is the explanation of the eternal God, you, to us about who you are and what you require. God, I pray that today as we come to the word, we would not view it as small, but as massive, that we would view this passage written by the hand of Paul, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as valuable and authoritative as if Jesus Christ were in this room speaking to us verbally and physically today. For Lord, that is what your word is. So Father, I pray that today we would view this word in great esteem, that we would uphold it in our heart, that we would look on it and we would desire to hear what you have to, to say to us. And Lord, I pray that you would do what we cannot, that you would feed us from your word, that you would make it clear and plain to us what it means, that you would reveal to us your love and your desire for us to know and love and live for you. God, show us how and show us what it means to live for you. And God, I pray that today you would give us conviction to change. Lord, I praise you for all that you've done, and I thank you for all that you will do. Now, Lord, be with us in a unique and special way today in this sermon. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please open your Bibles to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We have been in the book of 2 Timothy for a little over a month now, and I am loving it. It is a wonderful reminder about what it means to continue on in zeal. For the first first month or so, we've been considering this little letter that Paul sent to his spiritual son, Timothy, because Timothy seems to have lost some of that fire that was in him that he experienced earlier in his walk with the Lord. He is naturally very timid as a person. We see this not only from this book, but I think much more plainly and clearly in 1 Timothy. He has struggled against standing up for truth. He has struggled to know how to navigate the waters of having false teachers within the church come against him. He has struggled from the idea of persecution coming from the outside world. And this is especially clear from the first letter that we see that uh, Paul wrote to Timothy. But that same message is now echoing clearly and strongly in this letter as well. So Paul has commanded Timothy to stand strong and accept the fact that trials and persecution are coming your way. It's part of the deal when you become a believer. But it was not enough for Paul to simply explain that there are going to be trials and that you must stand firm. He also told Paul how to do it. Last week, we saw the beginning of that explanation, that he tells him to stand strong in the grace of Jesus Christ. You cannot do this in your own strength. We use the imagery of, if I was trying to lift 400 pounds, obviously I'm going to die before that happens. But if I had strong people on either side lifting that bar for me, then I could do it. Christ must be the one in his grace to allow us to be faithful. This morning, Paul is going to give us more ammunition in our fight against the temptation to fold under pressure. In order to break it down into a very digestible 
uh, way of understanding it. I'm going to present this sermon through the following four points. Point number one, remember that Christ was exalted. Point number two, remember Christians who are unwavering. Point number three, remember that the gospel is unstoppable. And point number four, remember that God is faithful. And you'll notice a pattern here. There is a command here for us to remember. Let's look at these truths as we read them, starting in the text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So we begin now with point number one, which is this. You must remember that Christ was exalted. When we feel the riptide of our American culture seeking to drag us out into the sea of sin, we have to know how to swim against the current, right? That is what Paul is teaching Timothy to do. When persecution comes at us like a storm, we need to know where we are going to find shelter. So up to this point in chapter 2, all of Paul's commands are as follows. He tells him, be strengthened by the grace of Jesus Christ. Teach faithful men about the grace of Christ. Share in suffering by the grace of Christ. Run the good race by the grace of Christ. And be a hard, diligent worker like a farmer who is functioning with daily tenacity by the grace of Christ. That is what we have seen so far. But now he reaches this underlying power of how to do all of these things. It all grounds itself in this statement. Very simply, he says, remember Jesus Christ. It's important that we see how he describes exactly what he wants us to understand about Jesus. What aspect of Jesus do you want me to think about? Paul, what exactly are you saying that I should have in my mind when I remember him? If I said to you right now, remember Abraham Lincoln, there are a lot of things that you could possibly be thinking about. You could be thinking about him in his childhood home. You could be thinking about him as he was being elected as president. You could consider how he had dealt with issues during the Civil War. You could be thinking about the Emancipation Proclamation or the Gettysburg Address or his assassination. There's all sorts of things you might be thinking about because you know a great deal about this individual who existed. So when I say to you, or when Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, what specifically are we supposed to focus on? And we see here there is one single element that Paul brings out and lays at the lap of Timothy and says, focus on this. Remember Jesus Christ, namely in his resurrection. Remember that he was raised. Now, why would Paul point Timothy to this instead of anything else? 
Why would he point him to this as a way to stand strong in the face of persecution that is coming from the outside and to stand his ground against false teaching that is coming up trying to infiltrate the church from the inside? Well, it's probably important to say that I don't think Paul is telling Timothy anything here that he doesn't already know and that he hasn't already heard. This is not new information to Timothy. Every single part of the text we are examining before us today was written in a kind of Pauline shorthand. He is writing to Timothy, telling him things that he has spoken with Timothy about many times on many occasions. He fully expects that Timothy is going to understand what he is saying. This is part of what he calls earlier my gospel, the gospel message that he regularly proclaimed during the 10 years that these men were serving the Lord together. And this was part of that gospel message that he defended and served for more than a decade with the same man. So Timothy knows exactly what Paul is highlighting when he singles out the resurrection. But for us, it might not be so easy to make the connection unless we see how Paul speaks about this elsewhere in his writings, things that Timothy would have known well. So let's think this through. The fact that Jesus was resurrected presupposes that he was dead. It presupposes the crucifixion. So included in the notion that Jesus would be raised, it means that he died. People are not raised to life unless they were first dead. So included in this is a call to remember the cross. But the death of Christ is not the focal point here of Paul's argument. When I was growing up, our church would occasionally go to these big youth conferences in the state. And um, these things were massive. I think we would have like 16,000 students usually. We would get these big stadiums and we would fill them up with a bunch of youth students in Kansas, mostly who were Pharisees like, like I probably was at the time. And they would have a speaker come and they would speak to us and they'd tell us that we needed to give our money to missions. Uh, that was the majority of their message often not very beneficial. One of the men I remember very clearly speaking when I was a freshman in high school, he made this argument and he repeated it many times. He said, do you realize that Jesus walked all the way to Calvary with a cross on his back and you're not willing to walk up here to this altar to get prayed for? That is manipulation. That is an attempt to pull on the emotional heartstrings of a teenager to get them to conform to do whatever you want them to do. And Paul is not making that kind of an emotional argument here with Timothy. He is not telling Timothy, you need to suffer because Jesus suffered. That is not how he goes about it. He doesn't even make a legitimate logical connection between the two. Obviously, Christ suffered in far greater ways than Paul did or than Timothy would. So he's not even using that logical statement to say, arguing from the greater to the lesser, you have less to worry about than Christ did. But instead, he points Timothy to what comes after suffering, to what was the result of the suffering. Jesus did suffer and he did die, but there was a reward for his obedience to the father. He is to receive the bride for which he died. Now, this is a cornerstone of Paul's theology. We see this everywhere in his writing. Earlier in his ministry, he had penned a letter to the church at Corinth, and he implored them, remember the resurrection. He says, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
And he says a little later in verses 20 through 24, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Notice, first fruits indicates there will be others like him who will also be raised to newness of life. For as by a man came death, By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. He he revels in this joy of the resurrection. If you read this chapter, you'll be overwhelmed with the fact that Paul is delighting in the fact that Jesus is indeed alive right now. It is Easter for the Christian right now. He is alive. And he's describing the great victory in this chapter that we have over death and the grave because Jesus conquered death and the grave. And he talks about the new resurrection body that we will receive, one like Christ, because he first donned the new resurrection body. And this chapter, honestly, has truly become one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible because of the extensive way that Paul connects the resurrection to our practical life. And he tells us that it has everything to do with the assurance of our hope to the point that if this is not true, if Jesus was not raised, then everything we are doing is worthless and our faith is in vain. And it says, of course, we of all people are to be most pitied. This is the cornerstone of what is going on in terms of our hope. And so Paul, I want you to see the way he brings this argument to a close in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. This is the application of his resurrection sermon to the Corinthian people. He says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, based upon all of this truth about the resurrection and the conquering of death and and sin and the grave, therefore... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This, I believe, is what he is telling Timothy when he says, remember the resurrection of Jesus. These truths about the resurrection and the promise that the sting of death is no longer real for the believer should anchor us to our calling. We are to be unmoved in the face of persecution with our feet cemented to the truth. Paul believed that the resurrection of Jesus was the motivating factor to withstand all forms of difficulty in the Christian life. Be steadfast and immovable. And it is based upon this that we know because of his resurrection that our labor is not in vain. Paul experienced a lot of suffering, a lot more than you and I ever will in this life. Most likely. And so what is his secret? What is the secret to your success, Paul? Holding fast to the reality that Christ has been raised. Therefore, we will likewise be raised with him. Our reward is not found here. If you are seeking a reward here, like the prosperity gospel teaches that we should, then you are missing the point of the Christian life. Our reward is Jesus Christ, the jewel of heaven, and we will have him forever. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So what are we to remember about Jesus? We are to remember that he endured suffering and that he was then raised. And then Paul adds this little parenthetical statement that he was the offspring of David. This highlights the humility of Jesus because included in the notion that he is the offspring of David, it means that he is the rightful king of his people. It means that he is the Messiah, the one who was promised the greater son of David who would sit on his throne forever. And it means that he is God incarnate, God made man. 
And yet, even though he is all of those things, he suffered in the place of those who hated him. So what do we remember? We remember this Jesus, the humble Jesus, resurrected from the grave. We come now to point number two, which is this. Remember Christians who are suffering and unwavering in the face of it. Paul transitions from speaking about the glories of resurrection to now discussing an autobiographical examination of his own power and his purpose in suffering. In verse 9 he says, My gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It would be an understatement to say that Paul had experienced incredible difficulties in his life. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked. If you want to go to 2 Corinthians chapter chapter 11 and read through the list that he gives, it is terrifying to see the amount of ways that one individual could be persecuted for Jesus. Most of these things happened on multiple occasions, and now he is rotting in the infamous Mamertine prison in Rome, and he is chained up like he is a common criminal. He uses a term here for criminal that's not really often used in the Bible, and it means that it's a position of great derision. It is a kind of pejorative word that you would use for people who are locked up. So you wouldn't call him an inmate, you would call him the worst of the worst of names you can imagine. This guy is the kind of guy you don't want to affiliate with. He is a criminal. But he says, quote, that he endured everything for the sake of those who are the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So what does that mean? What in the world are you talking about, Paul? You're not doing this for Jesus. You're doing this for the elect. Well, of course, he's doing it for Christ because the elect belong to him. The elect are the bride of Christ. The elect people of God are all those whom God chose before the foundations of the earth that they might be bought by the blood of Jesus. So the elect includes all who have ever been saved or whoever will be saved. And from heaven, he, Jesus Christ, came and sought her to be his holy bride. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 says it this way. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. So Paul is saying that he was committed to suffering for a reason. It was because he knew that it was not only for his sake. I'm not doing this just so I can get a reward. There is an external benefit to following Christ in the midst of persecution. It results in something good, not just for me, but also for the many. He says this, or we, we see this. If you are in Christ today, if you are saved today, you are saved because of people like Paul who stood firm in the face of persecution. He stood as an example for Timothy, and Paul stands also as an example for us. But Paul is not the only example that we have throughout history. It makes perfect sense that Paul is including himself in the text here. Timothy knows him really well. He has seen Paul suffer. In fact, Timothy probably helped Paul to bandage up his wounds after he had been stoned or beaten. And he probably saw the way that Paul would hobble around after he was persecuted with great violence. 
And he saw the way that he was sore and suffered and had to recover slowly as an older man who had been treated with great violence at the hands of many. And he had seen the faithfulness of Paul, how he had been shipwrecked and spent a day and night in the deep, and yet the next day he would eagerly get on the boat and get ready to sail again to the next city to hear the gospel. He had seen the faithfulness of this man to experience suffering, both intentional and what we would call natural from storms at sea, yet he would be faithful to continue going. And it's strengthening for us to hear that. It's strengthening for me to see the faithfulness of other Christians who have stood firm in the midst of difficulty and trials. That's true not only of Paul, but I can say that of times when people in this church body have experienced great difficulty and have faced them with faith and with strength. That gives me courage. That gives me hope. That helps me to trust. And it is strengthening to say, see the way that our brothers and sisters throughout time and around the world have stood faithfully against the, po- the forces that oppose us. It is good to remember Paul. It is good to remember Stephen, the first martyr of the church. It is good to remember many who have been martyred for Christ. I'll give you one example of a woman named Perpetua. I choose her because I think she is fascinating and because I think she is probably not well known within our church. She was a Christian and a young mother in the African city of Carthage, and she was executed for her faith in the year 2000 and, I'm sorry, not 2003, 203. I was way off. She was 22 years old when she was arrested. She was arrested with four others who were believers in Jesus Christ. And while she was imprisoned, her father came to her. He was a wealthy man, a businessman in the city with a great deal of influence. And he went to her in the prison and he begged her that she would stop professing Jesus Christ, that she would recant, and that she would just admit the fact that Jesus is not God and that she would worship the gods of the, of the Roman government and that she would be released and become free. Here are some of the things that he is recorded of saying to her. It says, have pity on my gray head. Can you hear the emotion in this father's voice? This unbeliever who doesn't know his daughter begging her, have pity on my gray head. Have pity on me, your father. If I deserve to even be called your father, if I have favored you above all your brothers, if I have raised you to reach this prime of your life. And then he threw himself down before her and he kissed her hands and her feet. And he said, do not abandon me. Do not reproach me. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your aunt. And of course, think of your child who will not be able to live once you're gone. Give up your pride, daughter. But she refused to deny her faith, and she remained there in prison for several days. A few days later, the governor named Hilarionus, we have a good records of this, Hilarionus brought them forth, and he was going to judge them. In these days, if you wanted to get out of execution for being a Christian, what you had to do was you had to make a sacrifice to this idol that represented the emperor. It was called the genius of the emperor. It was a depiction of the emperor in Rome. And you had to make a sacrifice to it or declare that Caesar is God. Caesar is Lord. But she would not do it. We see that they were brought into this room and all of the people began declaring their fealty to Christ. They would not turn. They would not recant. But then in the midst of the trial, Perpetua's father came into the room holding her less-than-year-old baby in his arms. And he began screaming to her, Perform the sacrifice! Won't you have pity on your baby? And Hilarionus seemed to be very uneasy about killing this young mother. So he began to beg this woman and say to her, Have pity on your father. Have pity on your son. Offer the sacrifice for the welfare of yourself and the emperor. 
As a parent, this to me is heartbreaking. And then Perpetual responded, I will not. And Hilariana said, are you a Christian then? And she responded, yes, I am. And the historical record shows that the Christians were then led into an arena where gladiators often battled. And the master of the games let loose an infuriated leopard who went through and began tearing these Christians apart. None of them, though, died from the attacks of this leopard, although they were greatly distraught by it and harmed by it. But when the leopard did not kill them and kind of ran into a corner of the arena, they were forced to stand and wait while one at a time they were stabbed through with a sword and killed. In the midst of all this, we see that each one of them, including Perpetua, who we know the most about because we have her personal journal, we know that they stood firm in the face of great trial and tribulation. Perpetua's death had an incredible impact on the early church, especially in North Africa, which, by the way, was the cornerstone. All the great cities of North Africa were cornerstone places for the growth of Christianity in the, in the early stages of the church. Augustine, for example, also an African, preached four sermons about her life. And her commitment to Jesus Christ as a cornerstone of the way that we should see how we should be committed even in the face of great persecution. It is good to remember Perpetua. It is good to remember those who are suffering for Christ and be strengthened for their resolve. These stories are not rare. These stories are common. There have been more Christians killed for their faith in the last 100 years than there were in the first 1900 years of the church combined. There is a recent study that was performed by the Civitas Institute for the Civil, uh, uh, Civil Society in London, which is a very prestigious organization of independent research, by the way. The study explains how right now Christians are by far the most uh, discriminated against and violently persecuted group in the world, and there is no close second. Open Door USA, who does a very good job of tracking only verifiable accounts, has a tracker of persecution that is going on around the world right now, this year. So far in 2008, as of yesterday, they can verify that 3,066 Christians have been killed for their faith. These people are people we know their names, we know where they lived. There are 1,252 who have been abducted, and we have no idea where they are. This most often happens in China, where people who oppose the government just disappear. There are 1,020 who have been forcibly raped, and 793 churches that were violently attacked, some of them burned, with people inside during a time of worship. None of us came to church this morning wondering if someone was going to throw a grenade through one of those windows. None of us came into this room fearful that we were going to be lined up against that wall and the government was going to take our identification and mark down the fact that we were here. We don't have to come in fear. By God's grace, we have an almost unprecedented freedom of religion in this country. And I'm thankful for that. But be encouraged about our brothers and sisters who don't have that kind of freedom, yet remain faithful to gather and faithful to worship, and faithful to love Jesus Christ and live for him. So when you feel a little sting from being left out of a party because you're a Christian, or not being invited because of your faith or your moral sensibilities, or when somebody comes after you on social media because they think that you are so absurd to believe in this archaic book, remember faithful believers who have held fast in much harsher situations than we experience. That brings us now to point number three, Remember that the gospel is unstoppable. You may have noticed I breezed by something that Paul said earlier. 
to the end of verse 9. Look at the whole verse for a moment. He says, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. I might be chained up here in this dusky, cold prison, but the word of God can't be chained up, Timothy. You think God's going to allow something as simple as this prison or this Roman government to stop him? It's spreading can't be contained by anybody who would bottle it up or try to beat it down. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote to the Philippian church. If you'll remember, this is an earlier imprisonment. It wasn't as harsh. He was in house arrest, but he was still chained regularly. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, these words, I want you to know, speaking to the Philippian brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He is saying this because they expect the opposite to be taking place, that it would diminish the gospel. But it's actually served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They were trying to stop Paul. They would, send in, uh, they would send in a Roman soldier to be chained up to him. They literally had to chain them together. And Paul would just share the gospel with the man. And then this man would think he's crazy and probably leave. And the next guy would come in and Paul would share the gospel with that man. A 10-hour shift, locked up next to this evangelist. And then it would happen over and over and over until he says literally the whole imperial guard knows. They know why I'm here. It doesn't say that they're all saved, but it says that they all know the gospel. They've all heard it. Paul is not allowing these chains to shut his mouth. And God's word is not chained. It is not bound. Paul is so faithful to share the gospel that eventually the entire imperial guard, and when he says, and everyone else, that it seems to imply that all of the other Roman soldiers in the area also knew about it. And also, it says, that other Christians were more emboldened to be evangelistic. They were afraid. They were holding back. But now they, they hear what's happening to Paul and they say, if Paul can do that in the face of persecution, I will stand firm too. Persecution has never stopped the church. It can't. Jesus said, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If Rome is going to try, they're, they're not nearly as powerful as hell. Hell can't prevail. America can't prevail. China can't prevail. There is no hope for any enemy of the church because Jesus can't be thwarted. He will build his church. It's a promise. So he will have the bride for which he died. It is his reward. So let me clarify my terms right now. When Jesus said this, that he will build his church, he's speaking about the universal church. He will build the universal church. And by universal church, I'm talking about what some theologians call the invisible church. It's all the people who are actually genuinely saved. Not all the people who say they are saved. Not all the people who attend church on Sunday mornings. Not all the people who bear the name of Jesus but don't trust him. It's all people of all time who really trust Christ. Persecution has never been effective in eliminating, diminishing, destroying, or shuttering any of the genuine church of God. It cannot. Persecution has only ever stopped false Christians in their tracks. Nero's persecutions of the Christians may have moved the church underground into the catacombs, but for generations of worshiping underground, those Christians grew strong. And during the Islamic invasion that swept across North Africa, remember we talked about those cities earlier? Those cities were great centers of Christian thought. 
Many of them were attacked and destroyed by the Islamic invasion in the 6th and 7 and 800s. And as those invasions took place, there were incredible amounts of executions and persecution that arose. But the church has survived even to this day. There are still Christians in all of those nations who have existed and survived even from the early days of Christianity after suffering some of the greatest persecution that has existed. And they've been underground for more than a thousand years. The Roman Catholic Church, seeking to preserve its stranglehold on European politics, was terrified of the idea that the Bible, that this word of God would be printed in the language that people could read, it would be handed out to them. They were afraid of that because it would undermine a lot of the false teaching that had gone on within the Roman Catholic Church, and they hated anybody who would attempt to translate the Bible into English. One of the great men who began that project was named John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe, he eventually died before he could finish He died of a stroke, but the Roman Catholic Church hated him so much that 43 years after he died, they saw the amount of effort that had gone into taking his work and spreading it, and they were so frustrated by the fact that the Word of God had been passed around and been read by so many that they actually went to his grave, dug up his dead body, took his bones, and they burned them until there was nothing left but ashes, and then took them and threw them into the river so that nobody could ever find them. They hated the fact that this man translated the word of God, but the word of God is not bound. This was just a foreshadowing of the many who would give their lives so that you and I could hold this book in our hands, in our language, in a way that we can read it. But popes and kings and queens, along with their armies, have never held the key to quelling the advance of the gospel. Pharaoh never stopped Moses. Herod never stopped Jesus. The word of God will prevail through the midst of every single tyrant that ever rules. If you are a Christian, you are living proof that persecution does not stop the gospel. The gospel came to you through generations of faithful Christians who stood firm even though it was illegal for them to believe the things that they believed. The word of God is not bound. Persecution has never been able to even slow down the gospel. But you know what does slow it down? compromise. We won't get there in today's text very much, but I want you to know this because it's going to be something that Paul speaks a great deal about. He is telling Timothy to stand firm because there are many who were attempting to compromise the gospel. They wanted to just allow some changes to be made so it would become more palatable to the people. And we're not going to focus on that today. That's its own sermon. But I want you to see that Paul is telling him the gospel can't be stopped by persecution, but only by compromising it. Paul is going to be speaking about these false teachers who have sought to bring a false gospel in. And without stealing the thunder of that sermon later on, I simply want to say that the way that local churches and denominations and Christian movements at large die is that they walk away from the central tenet of the gospel. Which brings us very nicely now to point number four, which is this. Remember that God is faithful. As much as it is right and good that we remember Paul, and as much as it is right and good that we remember other Christians like Perpetua and those who have gone on to be martyrs before us, as much as that is significant, Paul never makes that the main focus here in the text. He concludes this thought with a four-line poem here, and it is written like a song that was designed to be sung. Some believe that it was already a common saying. That's why he says, the saying is trustworthy. And that Paul is now commending this as being a legitimate way to describe the faithfulness of God. That's why he begins by saying, of course, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, 
we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now let's examine this poem one line at a time. First, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Notice, all four of these statements are going to be conditional. They are if-then statements. In other words, we will only live with him if the condition has first been met that we have also died with him. It becomes immediately and abundantly clear that Paul is not speaking to physical death at this point. If Paul was speaking about physical death, then only martyrs are going to heaven. They are the only people who are actually going to be raised. That would contradict all that we know to be true from Scripture, so we can safely eliminate that, that option. Therefore, this must not be speaking about a physical death here, if we have died with him. Rather, it is speaking about a metaphorical form of dying, that, and that is what is being referenced. Remember, Paul is not teaching Timothy anything new at this point. He is reminding Timothy of the gospel that has so often been preached, and that he has often talked to him about. So the best way for us to construct an appropriate understanding of what Paul is getting at here at the first line of this poem, in order to do that, we must first extract Paul and his theology using the same metaphor where it exists elsewhere in his teaching. Now, there are many possible examples, but I'm just going to land on a couple of them, just two. And I want you to follow along carefully. The word should be up here on the screen, Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. This is really rich. I want you to follow along, which says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is the identical promise that we're seeing here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. But the next few verses flesh out exactly what that looks like. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So he is not talking about physical death. He's saying if you are in Christ, there's something that has happened. You have been crucified with Jesus. Your sin is now dead. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. Again, this is a repetition of exactly what we see in 2 Timothy 2.11. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is one of the most dense passages in the New Testament, and it contains many really challenging concepts and theological points that we just don't have time to do an extended study on right now, but I encourage you to do that. For now, I simply want to make the connection that Paul is indicating that being united to Christ in his death equals being dead to sin. Okay? Paul explains it again this way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In this instance, Paul explains death, or more specifically, crucifixion with Christ, and he reveals that the Christian life is to be lived, although physically in the body, in the flesh, it is to be lived with faith, by faith. Do we understand what he is saying here? 
we can reasonably argue that Paul is telling Timothy here something like this. If you have died to sin and now live by faith, then you will experience life with Christ. That is the point of the first line of this poem. This is an element, by the way, of the gospel that is often overlooked, but we must not neglect it. It is one of the Pauline theology elements of his theology that we cannot downplay, we cannot obscure it, because genuine saving faith results in a changed life. If you do not have a changed life, you do not have a genuine saving faith. Jesus referred to this as denying ourselves and picking up our cross and following him. Following Jesus is a death sentence to your sin. Peter would explain the same concept this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. He said, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Follow in his steps means live a life like his. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Don't stop there. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we may die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep. In other words, you were sinning. But now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So allow me to explain the gospel this way. You're a sinner. Just like me. We have all failed to meet the requirements of God's approval. Because God is perfect and even uh, his standard is perfect because of his perfection. He cannot accept anything that is less than 100% holy. But even the most secular people that I know, people that are even God haters, will tell you very simply, and I've always heard them to agree with me, nobody's perfect. Of course they would say that. Nobody, none of us are perfect. But the penalty for not living a perfect life, a penalty for our sin, is that we have been alienated from God. We are no longer in a right relationship with God. We have become rebels against God. We are seeking to undermine the authority of God. We are seeking to be good and have good and delight apart from God, the only one who can satisfy us. And we found all sorts of ways to try to satisfy ourselves. We've done this by the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and pride of life. And this is all bad news because all of the ways that we have attempted to delight ourselves... All of the ways that we have attempted to fulfill ourselves, all of them are worthless and empty and also destructive. Sin always hurts. It always hurts you and it always hurts those around you. It is not only a lack of love for God, but it then results in an overflow that is natural selfishness, which causes you not to love your neighbors or others around you. That's all bad news, but it's not the worst news. It's not bad Uh, It's not the worst of news because even though this is bad that we have erected idols that don't satisfy, the worst part is that the God who made the universe has set specific rules over the universe and has guaranteed that he will by no means clear the guilty, as we read earlier from the book of Exodus. And unless you have not been paying attention, that is you and that is me. We are worthy of the full, unvented, eternal wrath of God over our lives forever in a place the Bible calls hell. That is the worst news. And that is what we rightfully deserve. And that should make you tremble. Even as somebody who has been saved by the grace of God from it, you should read that about the wrath of God and tremble. 
But there is good news. God loved the world and he sent his only son to die for sinners like you and me. The cross is the ultimate picture of not only God's punishment against sin for as we read earlier christ took our sins in his body on the tree the punishment of christ on the cross is a picture of his justice but it is also the infinite picture of his love the extent to which he is willing to go to save his children and if you are a christian it is because jesus bore your sin on that day and all those who believe in the name of the lord jesus christ for their forgiveness of sins will be saved and will never be held accountable for their sins they've been washed away they are completely removed. Uh, earlier this week, I was reading about the Oort cloud. It is this massive kind of cloud of asteroids way out in our galaxy. They said that there is, um, there is a, a, a thing that we sent off in 1970, this probe out into space, and it's going to begin entering into the Oort cloud sometime in the next decade. And they said, but it won't exit to the other side of the Oort cloud for another 30,000 years. That is massive. Our sins are farther away than that. Our sins have been removed infinitely from us and they are remembered no more. God has said that all that we have done has been placed on the shoulders of his own son and he has taken our place. So if you're here today not knowing Christ, not a Christian, and you are listening to my voice, I want you to understand something. You currently stand under the wrath of God and at the very moment you close your eyes in death, if you do not have saving faith with Jesus, then you will experience that infinite wrath. But the good news is this. The grace of God is also infinite. And he has given his son so that those who have rejected him might trust him and live for him. So I want you to understand, if you are not a believer here today, don't leave this room without talking with me. I want to share more with you about the gospel. But I want to see that Paul also includes in so many of his writings, and so do the rest of the New Testament writers for that matter, that it is a fact of the gospel that is not just the gospel that gets us into the door. It's not just like a key opening to the gate of salvation. No, it goes far beyond that. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything that we do. It does that because it changes everything about who we are. We are a new creation. We are now made in the image of Christ. Don't miss what Peter said. He himself bore our sins in his body that, or so that, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By telling Timothy that he must die with Jesus, he is telling him, you must die to sin. In particular, he is telling Timothy not to cling too tightly to this life or the comfort that can be found here in this life, trying to preserve it. This becomes even more evident in the second line of the poem, which says, if we endure we will also reign with him. Once again, this is a conditional statement. There is a promise that we will reign with Christ, but first we must endure to the end. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints simply says this, God finishes what he starts. Or to say it like Paul does in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. You are not capable of initiating your salvation and you are not capable of ultimately completing it. Jesus is called the author and the finisher of your faith. However, from our human vantage point, we see in part and we know in part. That means that I am subjectively made confident about your salvation and based upon the way you live. 
think about what we say about one another. I think that person is genuinely saved because I see he's living a repentant lifestyle. I believe that that person's testimony is true because they continue on in love and good works towards the brothers. I believe that that person is following Christ because they have left behind the things of this world and it appears to me that he is living for Jesus Christ. That's what Judas looked like and then he turned away. Eventually, you will show your cards. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 explains it by saying that they have gone out from us because it, so that it would be made known that they were never of us. There are apostate people who appear for a time to follow Christ and then walk away. So there's a subjective observation that takes place where we look at people's lives and we seek to determine the reality of their salvation. But I can tell you, I hope this is not true, but it is possible that somebody could come to our church, that they could go through the interview process of membership, they could fill out all the paperwork, they could write in what it means to be saved, they could know the facts of the gospel in their mind, they could be confirmed as a member and baptized and take the Lord's Supper regularly with the people of God, and yet not really genuinely know Christ. And he says to Timothy, you must endure to the end, you must Timothy, if you anticipate the expectation of reigning with Christ. Paul is going to juxtapose this kind of faithful living against the contrasting image of Demas later in chapter 4. Demas was a man who had served like Timothy with Paul, but then he rejected Paul and went back into the world because it says he was in love, not with Christ, but with this present world. And he's telling Timothy in this book, do not be in love with this present world, rather be in love with Christ. So it's only those who persevere to the end who are granted the honor to reign with Christ. There's far too little time to dig thoroughly into what it means to reign with Christ here. But to put it in its most basic form, it means something like this. It means that we are going to have the great honor of sitting near and around Christ in his heavenly places as we rejoice and celebrate in every proclamation that he makes and affirm it. We are not ruling and reigning in the sense that we're the one calling the shots. We are simply declaring with Christ, amen, to every command that he makes over the universe. We will agree with every one of his decrees. The next line of the poem says this, if we deny him, he will also deny us. That is a solemn warning for Timothy, and that is a solemn warning for us. It is a serious warning not to reject Christ and not to fall sway to, uh, to persecution. It is the opposite of, per, of perseverance. Those who persevere to the end will reign with Christ. Those who do not, those who deny Christ, will be denied by him. By denying here, he is speaking about an out-and-out rejection as Jesus as king over your life. Jesus explains it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That is terrifying language. One of the last things that you ever want to hear Jesus say is, Depart from me. I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Part of the reason that Paul is urging Timothy, and by extension each of us, to continue this race is because it has eternal significance for our own souls. It is not a minor thing to give up on Christ. It results in being deny, denying Christ and being denied by him. It means that he will say to you, I never knew you. And Paul reiterates 
what he's saying in the final line of his poem this way. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. This is actually a very challenging part of the poem to understand. And I want to try and explain it as well as I can in a very brief amount of time. But I will just mention, this is the most debated part by far of what we are considering today. What exactly is he saying? There are many different options that are given. I'm going to give you two of them and tell you that both of them I think are faithful ways to understand it linguistically, but I will also tell you which one I think is correct. First, there are many people that believe this saying is saying that if we fail and we become apostates and we leave the church like Judas and do our own thing, then God is going to remain faithful to build his church. This is possible, and it's a way to explain these few verses. However, I think it's more likely that he's saying something a little bit more specific to the individuals who fall away. The word faithless here literally means those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, this phrase is not talking about Christians who fall into a temporary pattern of sin. This is speaking to those who truly never knew Christ. But in what way does Christ remain faithful to them? That is challenging. It seems that Paul is making the argument that God is faithful to judge the wicked. He is faithful to carry out the promised penalty for the rejection of the king of the cosmos. There is no linguistic wiggle room here for us to explain this by saying, God is saying, well, Timothy, if you mess up, then God's going to write you a blank check to correct everything that you fail in. No, we do know from other places in the word of God that if we do, if we do fall into sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin when we repent. But here he is basically declaring, if you do not have faith and it reveals itself in the way that you reject Christ in this life, then there is no expectation you can have except the punishment of God because he is faithful. He is faithful and will not deny himself in that he will save his children, but also that he will punish the guilty. So allow me to close this sermon and land this plane by offering you four very simple points of application that are basically rooted one in each of the points we've hit so far. First, remember Jesus Christ. It sounds simple. It is very hard. Remember Jesus Christ. The, the truth of Christ and the gospel must be in your mind before it's going to rest in your heart. Put it in your mind every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Remember that he suffered and has been raised and that it is by the powerful gospel that we are made able to stand firm. You're struggling to stand firm at work? Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember Jesus Christ. Secondly, remember faithful believers. Search out good, accurate, truthful, faithful organizations who provide ways to love and support the persecuted church around the world. Voice of the Martyrs is an excellent one. I highly recommend going to their website, signing up for their newsletter, reading the stories that they send out each month about people around the world who are being persecuted. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs or subscribe to other locations that will tell you about people who are currently living under the harshness of evil nations that are punishing the faith, we are going to benefit from their faith and stand firm. But also, let's seek for ways to serve and love them. They truly are our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. May we be emboldened, and may we also embolden them. Thirdly, remember that the gospel cannot be chained. I want to speak for a moment to those in our church who are particularly keen on politics for a moment. I want to be grateful every day for the freedom of religion that we have in this country. I am so thankful for the fact that we can come here and open the Bible and be able to preach what the Bible says 
without somebody coming and arresting me and putting me in jail for that. That is rare in the world, even today. But please don't view the government of our nation as the avenue for the advancement of the kingdom of God. If Christianity became illegal right now in this country, there would be a rapid purification of the church in America. Many would leave the church who have professed the name but don't truly love Jesus Christ. That may even happen if it were to take place in this local body. The true church of God is not limited by human laws. And I see in my own human heart the natural sinful tendency to make an idol out of even the good thing of my freedom in this country. To make an idol out of religious freedom and a desire to pursue that at all costs. I see the way that I can naturally desire that to the point that I don't love people who disagree with me politically. And that is dangerous when we elevate any kind of political policy or party or individual or platform above the truth of loving God and loving others. So I want to encourage you to remember that we are citizens of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are citizens of heaven, and that cannot be removed from you, and it cannot be forcibly changed. It doesn't matter what happens in this national... America's an experiment. It's going to come to an end. It doesn't ultimately matter what the rules of our nation exist as. It doesn't matter if we ultimately have religious freedom. We know the end of the story. God is in control, and he wins. So as much as I love to follow what is happening in Albany or what is happening in Washington, D.C., or whatever is happening locally, those things are important, I think, as Christians. We love our neighbors by voting well, those types of things. But also, I want to encourage you, never make that out to be primary in your life. That is very easy for us, and I've noticed it probably in a growing way over the last five years or so, to be an idol that is very clear and evident within the church of Jesus Christ. So beware that you never elevate that to a place that is ungodly. Fourth, Remember that God is faithful. He is faithful to keep those that are his. He promises that if you are in Christ, he's going he's to continue working on you and he's going to pull you through. But he's also faithful to judge those who reject him. So I want you to finally close this out by remembering what Paul is saying to us here. The gospel is of first importance and that must settle deeply and richly on our hearts, remembering that he is faithful and he will always be faithful. So let's close resonating with our hearts set on that great truth. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, it is an amazing thing to me that though this world has sought to rend asunder the church through many different forms of persecution, that your gospel has abounded throughout the, the course of the world and throughout the nations and throughout languages. I thank you that even right now, I, I, there are about 15 new languages that have been given the gospel in the last year. God, I thank you for that. Lord, I praise you for the expanse of your kingdom. I thank you, Lord, that there are many around the world who are hearing the truth of the gospel preached and proclaimed in a church right now for the first time. Your kingdom is growing and your word is unbound. I thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the fact that that means we too who trust in him will be raised with him in newness of life and also to ultimate reward in glory. And God, I pray that today as we trust in you, as we follow you, as we live for you, you would give us strength. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone convicted today who in their heart is realizing that they don't truly know you, God, I ask that you would please break their heart, break rebellion, and cause them to follow you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Give them faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.